Welcome to the Minds of the Early Church podcast. This podcast seeks to understand and develop the way of thinking of the early church, especially its spiritual and intellectual insights, in order to guide us in our time. Developing this way of thinking in ourselves will also give us new ways of navigating a quickly changing world and will allow us to engage the modern world in a fresh, exciting, and authentic way. Formation on Reading and Literature If you want to know how long it would take you to finish a book, there is a website called readinglength.com which calculates the time based on how many words are in the book and the average number of words read per minute. Isn't that nice? Then we have audiobooks which tell us how many hours it will take us to finish a book by listening to it. That's even nicer, right? But how many times have you found yourself having to listen again to a section or chapter or even the whole book to understand it? If that's you, then you've discovered what reading theorists have known for a long time. That reading is not a mechanical process. It's not even close. Real reading, especially reading the important types of books that touch our life and help us deepen our vision, such as poetry, philosophy, spirituality, theology, and history requires a person to stop and think about what he or she has read. Some parts you can read through quickly, while other parts can take you a very long time to read. An audiobook does not give you the ability to do that unless you stop and rewind, which I often do, and I'm sure many of you have done, which can sometimes be frustrating. And for these reasons, ReadingLength.com can in no way accurately estimate how long it will take you to read a book. Maybe this can work for a simple novel, but generally not for the types of books I mentioned above. This type of real reading is not modeled in our schools today, yet this is the type of reading that humanizes a person and makes them deep-souled and fruitful people. It is this type of person that others like to spend time around. It is also this type of person that inspires others. But before we move forward, there must be a cultural shift regarding reading. What do you think comes to mind when a child hears the word reading? It's simple. Stories and fiction books are what come to mind. But what comes to mind when an adult hears reading? If this was a few years ago, they probably would have answered philosophy, history, spirituality, poetry, or theology. But more and more, they associate it with reading fiction books that have not yet been turned into movies. Yet I will move on with the assumption that adults understand reading as reading nonfiction, thought-provoking books for the sake of this episode. But now let me ask yet a third question. How is the idea of reading that children have different than watching movies? The answer is only the medium is different, but there is no essential difference. But the second idea of reading is different than watching movies, because the experience of reading those type of books cannot be easily imparted through other mediums because it is essentially different than movies. The medium is language itself. It is this way that we should come to think of reading for the purpose of forming people. This is real reading. 
And this was the idea of reading that people had until the late 20th century, when mass-market paperbacks and fiction books exploded in popularity. This explosion, along with trends in education, such as the Accelerated Reader Program, which came out in the late 1990s to overnight success, created a cultural shift with the idea of reading, and it moved away from reading as associated with cultivating wisdom to reading as associated with recall and basic comprehension. To make matters worse, with the rise of accelerated reader and quantitative analysis of reading levels, it was easier to quantify novels and basic informational books, like those on sports and brief biographies, than it was to quantify philosophy, poetry, and detailed history. So the idea of reading for wisdom, and how such reading could not take the form of other mediums, disappeared. Since reading used to be for cultivating wisdom, reading was thus about forming people, turning them into persons with a broad vision and imagination of possibilities, specific character traits, and shaping them into wise, thoughtful, careful, witty, friendly, pleasant, critical-thinking individuals who had good judgment about truth, goodness, and beauty. It initiated them into a tradition. This holds even more for Christianity, since such reading initiated us into the Christian life. To get back this idea of reading will require a cultural and conceptual shift, and the only way this will be done is by our taking up this way of life and modeling it to others. They will partake of what we are doing through imitation. It cannot be lectured and downloaded into other people's minds. But formation isn't easy. It requires extensive exposure to wholesome literature and ample time for reflection and discussion with those who have been initiated into this tradition. In the current educational and cultural climate, the idea of reading as it is taught and experienced in schools is very poor. Most students and adults associate reading with novels, which is undoubtedly a result of the poor imagination that such utilitarian education imparts. The reason for all this is that reading instruction has heavily emphasized comprehension only, and for that reason, there is no encouragement for students to read older texts, ones that are far removed from their time. Reading is now pretty much watching a movie, but instead of watching it, you're reading it. Think about it. How many books did you read that were older than a 100 years old when you were in school? How many were not novels? For the most part, the context of the books you read is essentially the same as the one you live in. It's no wonder students hate reading in the United States. They are much more intelligent than the education system. They know if reading is nothing more than accessing stories that have not been made into movies yet, or even accessing those that have been made into movies, it is just a waste of time. But I'll tell you, I've seen students that when they read a book that is interesting, one that expands the imagination and shows you the possibilities of life and has incredibly powerful conclusions or themes, or is of the highest beauty, a student will actually push themselves to improve their reading so they can access those texts. Formation can only come from regular exposure, ample time for reflection and discussion, and through worship and liturgy. 
Formation transforms the way you see things, and thus the way you act, and ultimately, the way you live. But if schools can no longer provide that effectively, and the church is not consistent with it, as I showed on the episode on testing for the toxin, the silent killer of church communities, then that raises a question. How then are people formed today? Are they? Oh, they most certainly are. They are formed by what they are regularly exposed to and what they discuss. So they are formed by social media, video games, Netflix, and pornography. Because these are the things young people are most regularly exposed to, reflect upon, and discuss with others. And in a twisted sense, they worship, because at some point they begin to live for such things. Pornography literally means the literature of whores. It forms a person like literature does. If a child is not exposed to good literature, and reflects upon literature and discusses it with those who have been initiated into such literature, like the scriptures and the church fathers, then pornography can completely take over a person's life. And based on what we see in society today, we can conclude beyond reasonable doubt that it has not only taken over the place of literature, but it has taken over youth culture in the West. Now, there's a difference between being formed by something versus struggling against it. Those who play video games from sunrise to sunset are formed by video games. Those who play a couple of hours a day and try to moderate it will struggle against the urge to play video games, and they will not be fully formed by them. Those who wake up in the middle of the night to view Instagram and stay up for a long time in the dead of night, scrolling down and interacting with their quote-unquote friends, are formed by the low-quality culture of Instagram. Those who do not have any background on how to view the relationship between men and women, and what the goal of sexual desire is, and why God has designed that in us, and how marriage is a crucial aspect of sanctification and salvation, will be formed by pornography. They will view the opposite sex as nothing more than an object for gratification. Those who watch pornography without any other type of formation become formed by what they see. It reorients their goals, desires, and brains so that they no longer know how to act, speak, and deal with other people. They become enslaved to their sexual urges, and it becomes a vicious cycle of internalization to the point that one never leaves himself or herself. I speculate, and I have not checked to see if there's research on the matter, that this is a reason why so many people are living at home through their late 20s and early 30s, without going to college or holding a job. But I think research has to be done on that to verify or falsify the hypothesis. But that's my speculation. Television shows are also highly formative, regardless of exposure, because they frame things as stories with clear messages about how to act in the face of certain issues. And because persons are the center of the narrative, so they can and will be imitated. Remember what I mentioned about powerful stories in the previous episode? So how do we go about reclaiming the formative power of literature and educating both ourselves and our young so that we and they are properly formed? Should we even care? I would like to note that the earliest motto of a library comes from ancient Egypt, 
in a room in Pharaoh Ramesses II's palace, which housed books, and thus was a personal library. Over the door of the library was written the words, which the Greek historians recounting the matter translated as Psychis Iatrion, which means healing of the soul. All ancient cultures knew that humans could regularly fall short of how they were supposed to live. But the Hebrews articulated it best with the idea of sin. The early Christian idea of sin was that it was a sort of spiritual disease, a disorder of the soul, which I have mentioned in most of my episodes. This disease of sin is ultimately healed by the imitation of the incarnate Christ and those who imitated him. But literature also has an effect on that healing. It forms us and humanizes us. If Christ became human and is the exemplar human, then we better know what it means to be human in order to recognize what his incarnation means. Literature strengthens that highest part of our soul, the intellect, which is the bearer of the image of God in us. This is because literature is a direct result of the activity of the image of God that we bear and with which we live. Reading literature and poetry sets something right in the rhythm of ourselves. It expands our imagination so that we can see so many possibilities for ways of life and to build good judgments and understanding of the world, of others, and of ourselves. I think of a book like The Little Prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, which I finally had the privilege of reading this last summer after it having been on my list for so many years. It is a short book, less than a hundred pages, but it is so imaginative and communicates such powerful lessons about the vicious cycles of modern life in short and clear ways that it has resonated with hundreds of millions of people since it was written. It has been translated into 368 languages, and has sold over 150 million copies, which makes it the third highest-selling novel of all time, after Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, which I will talk about later on in this episode. In The Little Prince, the image of the rose, the journey through the planets, the strange characters he meets on his way to the earth, the fragility of the little prince, the pilot's reflections upon the prince. A child could have read it, one million words in the Accelerated Reader program, and will simply have experienced trash. But the little prince contains more that one can take into life, both in terms of reframing vision and giving meaning to action, than most of the books that are on the recommended reading lists of the various state departments of education in the United States. It might be interesting for you to see what they recommend. Google it. But such reading like the little prince, is healing for the soul. Now moving on to the scriptures, try this. Read the wisdom books, which are poetry. Try reading the book of Job, or Psalms 92 through 108. Read them slowly. Put your hand on the page and place your fingers under the lines, and move down the page as you read. You'll be transformed in the process you'll experience a healing and a reorienting of vision. Some may think that this is too much, and all we need are Bible studies. 
But Bible studies are not comparable to reading the Bible, in the same way that studying soccer is not the same as playing it. When you play soccer, you feel the rush, the concentration, and the participation. Bible studies are like studying the plays. But without playing, what's the point? To add to this idea of literature as healing of the soul, St. Gregory the Theologian spent the last nine years of his life living in solitude and silence. In that time, he wrote a large number of poems, and the poem titled On His Own Verses, De Suos Versos, he mentions how writing poetry orders his soul, that it sets something right in him. It gives measure to his words, the word measure also being the virtue of moderation. It helps him develop this virtue with his tongue, so that not one word is spoken idly. This is the beginning of the virtue of moderation in general, and such moderation is a virtue we are sorely lacking today. St. Basil, in his address to young men on the use of Greek literature, section 2, says we must strive to the best of our power and must associate with poets and writers of prose and orators and with all men from whom there is any prospect of benefit with reference to the care of our soul. And he's not only talking about the scriptures, but even pagan literature, which of course he says to read in a specific way taking what is useful. But what is useful may not be what you think is useful. It is actually more a preparation for the gospel, because he says, just as dyers first prepare by certain treatments whatever material is to receive the dye, and then apply the color, whether it be purple or some other hue, so we also in the same manner must first, if the glory of the good is to abide with us indelible for all time, be instructed by these outside means, and then shall understand the sacred and mystical teachings. St. Augustine, who to my knowledge did not read St. Basil's address, when describing his spiritual journey, mentioned such a book which was titled Hortentius, written by Cicero, which made him think differently about God and made him seek God, even though Cicero had lived before Christianity. But St. Basil describes reading literature of all sorts, even pagan literature, as a sort of preparation for being able to engage with that literature, which is the Bible, when he says, Now to that other life, the Holy Scriptures lead the way, teaching us through mysteries. Yet so long as, by reason of your age, it is impossible for you to understand the depth of the meaning of these, in the meantime, by means of other analogies which are not entirely different, we give, as it were in shadows and reflections, a preliminary training to the eye of the soul, imitating those who perform their drills and military tactics, which then leads to good performance in combat. So the goal of reading literature, especially wholesome and useful literature, and after that ultimately the scriptures, is to train our vision. By now you can tell that a society is shaped by what it is reading. You can't get virtue in a society if there is no formation from wholesome literature. We've been running the experiment with social media. And I'm certain there is no doubt that teenagers and young adults are doing far worse than they were five years ago or ten years ago. But you might say that reading is a luxury of the rich or at least the well-educated. But that is actually a misconception. 
In the article Classics for the People by Edith Hall in the magazine Aeon, she shows that between 100 to 150 years ago, the working-class Britons, who worked in the mines and in factories, used to read the classics. They even had meetings to discuss them. It was not simply entertainment, but it was a meaningful way to develop oneself. When you think about this fact alone, they were more cultured than most of our lawyers, teachers, and medical professionals today. At about the same time in the United States, especially following the Civil War, African Americans valued classical education, and not only were reading the classics, but in many cases they were educating their communities in Latin and Greek to read them in the original languages. Margaret Malamud covers this movement in great detail in her book African Americans and the Classics, Antiquity, Abolition, and Activism. The great abolitionists like Frederick Douglass, who was also born into slavery, were very well read in Plato and ancient philosophy. He even said, bearing in mind with our definition of reading, that once you learn to read, then you'll be forever free. Reading the classics was a matter of developing personal freedom in addition to the civic freedom they had won. It was a way to deepen our vision of the world and to form individuals. But the philosophy of utilitarianism, which I mentioned in great detail in my episode Testing for the Toxin, was beginning, and it quickly overtook the West. This philosophy entered the United States, including in African-American communities. And education in general, regardless of community, ultimately took the road of utilitarianism. Malamud also covers that aspect in her book and how it developed in the African-American community, being epitomized in the debate between W.E.B. Du Bois, who argued for classical education for African-Americans, and Booker T. Washington, who argued for a vocational education that trained people for higher-paying jobs. With all that said, let's turn to our church communities. For those of us that belong to Orthodox Christian communities made up of immigrants, they tend to be well-off in terms of career, usually being doctors or engineers, lawyers, administrators, or employed in other high-paying fields. We call them well-educated, but the reality is that they are not well-educated, but rather well-trained for their jobs. Education is a matter of enculturation. I doubt we would say our church communities are highly cultured. A large number does not read the Bible, and an even larger number does not read the Fathers. Some don't even know that the saints of the early church left behind an overwhelming number of writings, much less the depth with which they wrote. We are not cultured in the tradition of Orthodox Christianity. This is why there are so many quote-unquote spiritual problems, especially with those in the same household, whether between husbands and wives, or parents and children, or children with each other. They usually refer to these as quote-unquote communication problems, but these are not communication problems. This is a lack of a common ground on which to build a shared life. I once overheard two of my students who were dating having a conversation early on in their miserably and necessarily short relationship. The boy told the girl, Your hair is glossy. How did you get it that way? She explained, and then she complimented him about his clothing. You may find this funny, but what is even funnier is that mature adults 
who have finished their graduate level education talk in the same way. The only difference is that the adults have money and the teenagers don't. All things holding constant, there is not an essential difference here in the type of conversation. Think about it. An up-and-coming doctor might compliment a young and pretty lawyer and tell her, your dress looks nice, while she might tell him, you look dashing in that suit. What is this? Marriages cannot be built upon such superficiality, much less families. And it is because boys can't court girls, and girls have no idea how to respond. They've got nothing to court, but they may be attracted to the boy. It all goes back to formation. Such talking is one that is directly focused on sexual activity as the implicit or explicit goal. This is why there are communication problems, because what further thing is there to communicate about after the goal has been achieved? But a shared life, a marriage, is much larger than that. It must be based on something deeper than appearance. But what is that deeper thing? Ah, spirituality, right? Actually, no. Personality is first. But what is personality? Isn't it just how a person is? Yes, but how a person is is based on their formation. If there isn't a formation of a person, then there is no foundation on which to build love. Because what is it that we will love in another person, if not their personality? What are we drawn to? Heck, what is love for that matter? If you want the answer in detail, refer back to my previous episode on Eros and Agape. But to make things short, true attraction is seeing what you love embodied in another person. And that necessarily means that you have been exposed to and formed by wholesome literature. You will have come to love that literature and formation then you will see it embodied in another person, and you will come to love them too. It will be a true attraction, and not only one of the body, but also of the mind and soul. But for several generations, people have not been formed well. There is this misconception that good behavior equals formation. It isn't. This is conditioning. We have been conditioned in our families and church communities. Conditioning is external but formation is internal. For every ten well-behaved young people I see at church, only one or two of them are truly formed. And you can tell by the way they think and reflect. You want the test? Here, try this. Ask an older child, a teenager, and maybe even someone in college, who is well-behaved, to reflect upon the Christian life. If they respond about how much they like to go to church and how they miss it when they don't go, and give all these stock answers, you should be worried. They're repeating what they think are the right answers. They're not reflecting, nor are they thinking. But if they make connections across the whole of the Christian experience, such as connecting the liturgy with the scriptures, and seeing how the vision that the Bible and the liturgy impart, and how the parts of the Christian way of seeing and being fit together, then you are dealing with someone who has been internally formed. They are reflecting and thinking, and they're exhibiting wisdom. Formation is based on reading or hearing, 
and a change inside the person. It is active. The person comes to accept and think through what they have read and heard. Conditioning is training the outside to behave in a certain way. It is reactive. It connects certain places with certain behaviors, but it does not reflect further. When a man and a woman are drawn to each other because both have been well-formed in literature and Christian thought, then their relationship will be solid. I'm not saying that challenges will not arise, but that the two will deal with the problems meaningfully, and they'll emerge all the wiser and closer after undergoing these challenges. But if there's no formation of this sort, then challenges will be the norm. Because what will happen when a man and a woman are drawn to each other without formation? Especially when everyone is college-educated or postgraduates, appearance will be the distinguishing factor between people. They will be drawn by physical appearance only, and superficial attributes like money, status, and family. When physical appearance and status are not there, then nothing. A man or woman will be ignored like a shoe you are not interested in buying, like a pair of Nikes. How many Nikes do we pass by before settling on the one we like? But maybe I'm being way too idealistic. I don't think so. I'm being a realist with respect to the Orthodox Christian tradition and what is currently happening in the Western world. As of 2018, 65% of 25 to 34-year-old men were not married in the United States. This is up from 50% in 2005. Also as of 2018, 32% of women who attend church weekly were not married by age 30. Further, 16% of evangelical Christians approved of cohabiting in 2014, but in 2018 that number had risen to 27%. In the article Christianity's Marriage Problem by Mark Regnerus, he refers to the network of young adults that formed around and was fostered and nurtured by Carol Wojtyla, the future Pope John Paul II, when he was a parish priest in Krakow, long before he became archbishop of that city and later Pope John Paul II. He called it Rotowishko, which translates into environment, though he preferred something more akin to milieu, It was about fostering a social environment in which Christian formation could thrive amid state and informal opposition. Particular groups would form around common conversations and interests to which Wojtyla then offered philosophical engagement and pastoral support. The groups took recreational excursions together. Then he continues, The friendliness and openness of Rodoishko stood in contrast to the hollow nature and false freedom of communist society in post-war Poland. This was a pocket of joyful resistance, an escape from the toxic atmosphere of the universities, where fear of informants was a constant anxiety. Given the toxicity and popularity of today's cancel culture, this idea sounds doubly inviting. Fostering marriages wasn't the point of Rodoishko. But for many of its young adults, it was a welcome byproduct. To close off this discussion, let's turn to the idea of the muse. From the ancient world, even up to today among the cultured, there is the recognition of the idea of the muse. 
A muse is a woman who is a fountain of artistic inspiration for the man who beholds and interacts with her. Her presence and conversation will inspire the artist to naturally and seamlessly create poetry, mythology, and art. The relationship of the artist with her can be platonic, courtship, or marital. J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, was inspired in such a way by his wife Edith. She was his muse. In fact, she was the inspiration of the central pattern and imagery of Lord of the Rings. He wrote a letter to his son Christopher on July 11, 1972, shortly after his wife's passing, recounting an incident that had happened more than 50 years before, in the middle of World War I. He had come back to recuperate after getting trench fever, which is treated today by antibiotics, but which did not exist in the 1910s. So he had to go home and spend a long time convalescing. In his letter recounting this incident, he described a small woodland glade filled with hemlocks where Edith danced and sang. To get the image better, a glade is a clearing in a forest where the light shines down easily. He was filled with so much inspiration from that incident that it shaped the entirety of the Lord of the Rings. In Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, one of the characters recites a song describing the relationship between Baron and Luthien Tenuviel. Baron was a mortal man, and Luthien an elf maiden, and the elves in his stories are awe-inspiring, unlike the childish portrayals in media today. The first three stanzas of this poem read, The leaves were long, the grass was green, the hemlock umbles tall and fair, and in the glade a light was seen, of stars in shadow shimmering. Tenuviel was dancing there, to music of a pipe unseen, and light of stars was in her hair, and in her raiment glimmering. There Baron came from mountains cold, and lost he wandered under leaves, and where the elven river rolled, he walked alone and sorrowing. He peered between the hemlock leaves, and saw in wonder flowers of gold, upon her mantle and her sleeves, and her hair like shadow following. Enchantment healed his weary feet, that over hills were doomed to roam, and forth he hastened strong and fleet, and grasped at moonbeams glistening. Through woven woods and elven home, she lightly fled on dancing feet, and left him lonely still to roam, in the silent forest listening. Can you see their life mythologically expressed in these three stanzas? The poem echoes throughout the entirety of Lord of the Rings in one way or another. Interestingly enough, the version in the Fellowship of the Ring is not that long being only about a page and a half. His son Christopher published the full book-length version of this poem that his father wrote in 2016, about a hundred years after the original incident that inspired it. Tolkien died a little over a year after he wrote that letter to his son. While he still lived, he wrote Luthien on his wife's tombstone. When he passed, they wrote Baron on his. That is meaningful love if I have ever seen it, 
totally different than the trash conversations we hear the young and even the long married having with each other today. It is this overflowing fountain of love between husband and wife that renews, nourishes, and inspires the community. It's time we formed our children accordingly. But more on that in the next episode on Philanthropia, a human-centered education. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode to be beneficial or interesting, please subscribe to my podcast and share it with your friends and family. You can also visit my website, danielhannawriter.com, where I have written articles and a list of recommended books, including much of what I mention on my podcast. I have also written on many different aspects of the Christian faith, from the Bible to spirituality to apologetics, book reviews, dialogues, patristics, and philosophy.